This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special 317th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an icon and living legend, an English singer-songwriter who has been making great music for more than a half century and is now universally regarded as one of the greatest rock stars of all time. A man whose mantelpiece holds six Grammys, an Oscar, a Tony, and a Kennedy Center honor, who was knighted by the Queen of England in 1988, and who was a 1992 inductee into the Songwriters Hall of Fame and a 1994 inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Reginald Kenneth Dwight, also known as Sir Elton John. John's career has been nothing short of remarkable in terms of both the quality and longevity of his output. He has, over the last half century, had 71 songs land on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart, 58 in the top 40, 27 in the top 10, and 9 that reached number 1. He has also had 17 studio albums land in the top 10 of the Billboard 200 Albums chart, 7 that reached number 1. And his Princess Diana tribute, Candle in the Wind 1997, is the best-selling single in the history of the U.S. and U.K. charts. Meanwhile, Rolling Stone has named him the 49th greatest artist of all time, included five of his singles on its list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, namely Your Song, Rocket Man, Candle in the Wind, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and Tiny Dancer, and listed five of his albums on its list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, namely Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Greatest Hits, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy, Honky Chateau, and Tumbleweed Connection. Playboy called him, quote, the biggest thing ever to hit the music business, partly because he seems to appeal to, or at least not alienate, all sorts of different people, close quote. The New York Times has said his music was, quote, perhaps the most characteristic pop sound of the early and middle 1970s, close quote. The Guardian labeled him, quote, the poster boy for late 20th century excess, close quote. And no less a musical great than Billy Joel has said, quote, he's fucking royalty. Before him, Rock was a bunch of James Taylor's, guitar-based singer-songwriter stuff. Elton brought back fantastic piano-based rock. Any melodic songwriter owes a debt to Elton John, the supreme melodist. And anybody who plays the keyboard and likes melody must give a nod to Elton. Like Cole Porter, Richard Rodgers, Carol King, and the Beatles, he carries on the rich tradition of writing beautiful melodies, close quote. Today, at the age of 72, John is still going strong and is as busy as ever. In 2018, he embarked on a three-year journey to retirement with his Farewell Yellow Brick Road tour, which has sold out arenas around the world. In 2019, his dishy autobiography, Me, co-written with Alexis Petritus, became an instant bestseller. And also in 2019, he contributed original songs to two hit films, John Favreau's The Lion King, and, even more personal to him, Dexter Fletcher's musical portrait of his life up until 1990, Rocket Man which he also produced with his husband, David Furnish. One of his songs from each of those films recently landed on the shortlist of 15 songs from which the music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is currently selecting its five Best Original Song Oscar nominees. Never Too Late from The Lion King, which he co-wrote with Tim Rice, and I'm Gonna Love Me Again from Rocket Man, which he co-wrote with his collaborator of 53 years, Bernie Taupin. On Sunday night, 
I'm Gonna Love Me Again was awarded the Best Original Song Golden Globe Award over tunes by, among others, Beyonce and Taylor Swift. Over the course of our conversation the day before at his art-filled home in Beverly Hills, John and I discussed his tumultuous childhood, the evolution of his treasured friendship with Toppin, the stories behind their greatest hits, how substance abuse almost derailed his career, what it was like revisiting all of the above in Rocket Man and me, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Sir Elton John, I don't know what the proper way to, how, how does one address you? You call me Elton, <laughs> Elton, please, yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for doing this. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And on this podcast, we kind of go through the lives of great artists, the big moments in their life. And we always begin by just hitting the basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in a suburb of North London called Pinner in Middlesex, uh, is the county, in a council house, which is state housing. Um, with my grandmother's house, I was born at home. Um, that's where I grew up in that area, and I more or less went to school from that area. I, I went to live in Northwood Hills, which is literally a mile away. That's where I started writing songs with Bernie. Yes. Um, and so that's where I grew up, and um, it was a lovely place to grow up. It was an exciting time to grow up because I grew up just after the war. So, you know, I grew up as things were changing. Music changed, obviously, in the late 50s with Elvis Presley. But I grew up with great singers like Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, Rosemary Clooney, Joe Stafford, and big band music, George Shearing as a piano player. So I was educated very well. Um, and there were great pop songs in those days, um, but they weren't rock and roll. And then Elvis Presley came along and little Richard and Jerry Lewis and changed the whole outlook, um, my whole outlook on music, and kind of determined my path. And your parents, if you can share a little bit about, I mean, we got a sense from the film and from your new book, but just they were obviously from a different time. How did they feel about music and you getting involved with music and all of that? My father was a trumpeter in a big band and um, he always loved music, but I don't think he liked rock and roll at all. My mum loved rock and roll and my stepfather, and they were much more hip. And they always encouraged me to do music and they were pretty good like that. I mean, it was my mum who bought home at Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis Presley, <laughs> like it was in the movie. And that changed my life. That record literally changed my life. It changed her life. It changed a lot of people's lives because Elvis not only changed the world musically, he changed it socially. And a lot of people rebelled against it at first. He wasn't the first artist that was screamed at. I mean, that happened, you know, to uh, Al Jolson. It happened to Johnny Ray. It happened to Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. It was a different kind of, you know, no one had gyrated like that before. <laughs> and um, it was the first kind of sexual kind of movements together with music. And, um, yeah, it changed the world socially. And so I grew up during that movement. And yeah. it was so exciting to see the world change like that. Also, I grew up as inventions came in, like refrigerators, yes. television. <laughs> and it was, you know, I, I'm so grateful I was born when I, I was born because... I saw the world change and everything meant so much. Getting your first television, having your first cup of coffee, yes. <laughs> getting your first washing machine, your first refrigerator, it meant a lot. And so things were exciting. And, um, you know, America for me, of course, was always the focus point or the focal point for me as far as music because all the great music came from America. Although you were coming of age just as... The Beatles and Rolling Yeah, and Stones. then it all started in the 60s. It yeah. all started to change with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and groups like that, the Dave Clark Five. But all those groups really started by playing American music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dave Clark Five, Do You Love Me was a contours record. The Rolling Stones covered Chuck Berry. The Beatles covered the Shirelles. <laughs> and they actually covered Till There Was You, which is from The Music Man, <laughs> so, um, which is opening on Broadway with Hugh Jackman. Yes. So we were all influenced so much by American music. So to get a sense of the home life, you know, again, we've seen glimpses of that in the film and in your book. But I mean, I, one thing that I thought maybe captured it most powerfully was in an interview where years ago where you had said that you developed a passion for objects yeah. in your childhood home, but for a very specific reason. Because they didn't make you feel sad and they didn't chastise you and they didn't browbeat you. I grew up in an unhappy marriage. My mother and father should never have married in the first place, and they endured their marriage for my sake. And then when they both divorced, um, they found their partners for life, which was great. But I grew up in acrimony. And, um, you know, when you're a child, you, you dread 
than the coming together of two people who don't like each other. So I used to retreat to my room and play with my toys and then my records, and they were all kept in pristine condition. And, yes, objects became my friends because I felt safe with them. And that's sort of a lifelong thing, right? As, yeah, I've always been a collector. Yeah. Um, and I divested myself, uh, most of my stuff, in 1989 at a Sotheby's sale in London. And then I started again. I got sober six months later, and I started collecting different things. <laughs> but it's always been a part of me, right. the collecting thing. So the first time that you actually acted upon your passion for music, which you displayed prowess at an early age, you had started on Saturdays, I know, taking lessons. But the first band was at 14, right, leading you to drop out of school around 17. How did that idea go over at home? Well, my dad was absolutely against it and wrote letters to my mother saying how much he was against it. I pretty made up, made up my mind that I wanted a career in music or just to be around music. I didn't know at that point that I was going to write songs or become a singer or an artist. I just loved the idea of being in music. So I had a semi-professional band called Bluesology when I was at school. And then my cousin, who was a professional soccer player, got me a job in Mills Music in Denmark Street, which was the end of Tin Pan Alley, as it was. And I was packing parcels and taking them to the post office. But I had my foot in the door, and I got to meet a few people who later on, in, in, as I became a songwriter, helped me. And then my band turned professional, and I started by backing people like Patti LaBelle, Lee Dorsey, uh, The Ink Spots, Billy Stewart. You know, we used to really earn our money. We, we used to do three or four shows a night sometimes, and these poor people would come over. They didn't think they really knew what had hit them, but <laughs> to watch those performers perform and to, to see how they entertain was great money in the bank for me for a later period. At that time, I wrote a couple of songs for Bluesology called Come Back Baby and Mr. Frantic, and then I sang those songs because the record label didn't like our lead singer's voice, so I did that, and then... I grew tired of that after a while. We backed Long John Baldry, who was a great legendary R&B singer and folk singer from England. And everything kind of happened by accident. Because I love music, I was so fed up playing with Johnny, was playing cabaret. And people weren't really interested in what you were right. playing. They were just eating. Right. And I thought, I didn't become a musician for this. So that led me to the great decision, yeah. the best decision I ever made, which was to answer an advertisement in the uh, New Musical Express and go for an audition at Liberty Records, who were becoming an independent record label in England as well as America. So I went there, and I said I could write, and I said I could sing, but I said I couldn't write lyrics. And that was obviously the scene in the film where Ray Williams, who was there, gave me this envelope. Now, there were stacks of envelopes. He just gave me the one. It could have been anybody's yeah. envelope, but that is called serendipity yeah, on a yeah. huge scale. So I read the lyrics back on the train, back to Pinner, Northwood Hills, and that was the start of Bernie and I. So... I made this big commitment. I was very shy in those days. I was hugely, you know, very, very, um, wouldn't say boo to a goose. So when I look back on it now, it was a big decision on my part. But I've always learned from that, that you make those decisions, you take the leap of faith. Something inside me was telling, go, 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 go do something else. And I did. And then I met Bernie. But even then, I would just wanted to be a songwriter. I had no idea of becoming Elton John. <laughs> and because nobody really wrote the songs that Bernie and I wrote, because we weren't very good at writing commercial songs. We were writing our own songs, um, which was the, um, all the material for the Empty Sky album, which was the first album. Mm -hmm. And then I recorded them. Then I had to get a band together to go on the road because that's how you promoted the records. And it all spiraled from there. Yeah. So the whole process was really a piece of luck and hard work. And, you know, hard work. But it, I never imagined when I was a kid, even though I wanted to be involved in music, it would have been in a record store working behind the counter. I was really, you know, it could. I just wanted to be around records and the music. And, and the rest is history, as I say. Absolutely. Well, I guess I wonder, with the benefit of more than a half century of hindsight at this point, why do you think you and Bernie hit it off to the extent, not just to the extent that you did, not just as collaborators, but as we've all seen now, best of friends, almost like brothers. What was it about the two of you that clicked? Well, he clicked. We're not very much alike. I mean, we're alike in the fact that we love music and literature and films and, and the arts. But his musical tastes were different from mine. But he was the brother I never had. So we went everywhere together, to the movies in the afternoon. We saw every B film, every A film. <laughs> we went to shows. We, you know, we just hung out. And we soaked each other up. And we became so joined at the hip. And I think what has really been the key issue is that we've never lived out of each other's pockets. He's had his life. I've had mine. 
He lived fairly near me at one point, but most of all has lived away from me. We don't collaborate in songs. I write the songs in a different room. And I think it's kept the, the whole process fresh because even now when I get a new song and I've got, got a bunch of new lyrics in Australia that I'm looking at, which are fabulous, I get excited because it's, you know, when I sit down at the piano and get a new lyric, it starts all over again. We don't discuss what we're going to write. We don't, you know, I never tell him what to write. We may discuss a theme for an album or something like the Captain Fantastic. Um, but the distance keeps us apart and it keeps us very together. And I just think, He's never complained about a melody that I've written to one of his lyrics, although I'm sure there are some that he didn't like. And I've never complained about a lyric. And um, I just, I'm so grateful that fate has brought us together and it works and it's still, I enjoy the process as much as I did way back in 1967. Yeah. Now, is there any rhyme or reason for why it goes in the order that it goes where it seems like, with I believe without exception, he comes up with the lyrics first, then gives it to you. And again, as you say, these are totally separate processes. Yeah. Why not perhaps you suggest the music and then he has to come up with the lyrics? How did it end up being that way? Only a couple of times that, that happened. Don't go breaking my heart. I was in Barbados and I wrote the first, you know, the da-da-da-da-da-da. And I sang it on the phone to him. And then he, ha he was in Toronto, so he wrote the lyric as I sang the verse. Mm -hmm. And then... Sorry seems to be the hardest word. I just had the line, what have I got to do to make you love me? And then he just took it from there. I don't really know. I mean, it's just, I'm not a lyricist. And people who say, oh, you should be able to write lyrics. You, you know, you're very verbose. You're an intelligent person. <laughs> it's a bit insulting to people who actually do that. Yeah, yeah. It's an art form. And what he does is brilliant. And I could never do that in a million years. And I don't really want to. I love the surprise. And because you're not necessarily planning these things out very much you said maybe a theme or something but bernie can go and write a song with a set of intentions or background in his mind and then you do the music with a totally different set i don't know i mean he writes the lyric and he's obviously as he's gotten older he's made his own albums he plays you know he's had a band so he obviously has more of a mindset as to what he thinks the song is going to be and I don't usually get it that far wrong, I, to be honest with you. We're pretty much in sync. I don't know how, but it's that that's what's kept us together, is that when he gives me something, I usually know what he's getting at. And um, it's very rarely that I mess that up. And if I do mess it up, we don't use the song. Well, and I don't even necessarily think it would be messing it up. It's just that, theoretically, you could have two totally different interpretations of what a song is about, right? I had an idea once. It would be great to go back and take all our hits and rewrite the melodies to them all. <laughs> Your song, Daniel, Goodbye, Elabit Road, all those songs. I could sit down and write another melody to all of those songs, um, which would be funny. Yes. Um, it probably wouldn't be very popular, but it would be very funny. <laughs> Have you ever, ever felt the urge to sit down and write lyrics? No. Never? No. And I don't do it very well. You know, once you know you do something well, you don't, you know, you give it a miss. I've had the odd line that's come to me, but yeah. no, 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 no. I'm not interested. Yeah. I'm interested in the surprise of getting... The lyric, and then that suggests a movie when I read it, and then I take it from there. And and pretty much the scene of your song in Rocket Man mm -hmm. is pretty much how it goes. And that was the first hit of any note after those first two albums. Yeah. Now this comes along. But actually, just to make sure I have the chronology right, those first two albums, the second one is the self-titled one. That is what essentially you were coming to America and to the Troubadour well, for that's debut. That's what your song was on. Yes. Yeah, it was on the second album. And so when your song became a, a hit, the Troubadour success and, and the Hilburn review and all of that preceded people really even on a wide level knowing about your song. It's called being in the right place at the right time. <laughs> I mean, it's a piece of luck. Yeah. Again, it, it's um, serendipity because I didn't really want to come to America at that point, although I've always wanted to come to America. But we were getting a reputation in England, and I thought maybe it was a bit too soon. But Dick James, in his wisdom, um, he was right, go there. And so we went, and everything happened. Again, if I hadn't made that decision, who knows what my career would have been mm -hmm. like. But I have a lot to thank Robert Hilburn for because it exploded my career on a publicity level. Having said that, I worked for two years playing second on the bill most of the time in America because America isn't just Los Angeles, New York, Chicago. It's a hell of a lot of places in between. And to earn your corn and become popular, you have to play second on the bill. And I did to Eric Clapton, um, the Kinks and people like that, and Leon Russell. 
And again, like playing with Paddy LaBelle, I watched these people and I thought, every night I'm going on stage, you're never going to be following me. You're not going to follow me. And every night they did and they triumphed. And I learned so much because you're looking at your peers and you're looking at your superiors and you learn from that. And it was just awe-inspiring to watch them play. You know, never a a night where I didn't go and watch Eric Clapton or Leon Russell. Mm -hmm. Just to go back for a second to the Troubadour, people, you know, should remember this is, I believe eight performances over six nights. The first one, your label mate, Neil Diamond, comes out and introduces you. It goes over as well as it did. But what I'm wondering is what going into that first night, before the reviews, before the the mania, what to you was the best case scenario of how it could go coming out of this? Could you ever have even imagined the ascent that happened right after that? No, I didn't know what to expect. Um, we had been playing a lot in England, so we were really afresh. We were really, really good. We had a three-piece band with Nigel Olsen on the vocals and drums, Dee Murray on bass and and, uh, and and vocals. And so we were ready. We were, you know, we'd been playing a lot in England. So I think what happened was because the Elton John album was fairly orchestral and and it had a very subdued album cover. Very, people thought I was going to be very kind of Randy Newman-esque, maybe, <laughs> and very shy and. Right. And, and of course, I came out in hot pants and flying boots, and uh, <laughs> we just lammed, you know, we, we really rocked. And I think it caught people by surprise. And the element of that surprise just, it worked. And it was, again, a, a moment in time when people were caught off guard. They weren't expecting that. And it was like, holy hell. <laughs> and uh, I was the first person, really, with a piano, bass, and drums. And that three piece let my music breathe. And I've always loved the three-piece band. And um, we recorded an album called 1911-1770 in, in New York at Phil Ramone Studio as a live broadcast. And it showed, that album especially shows the expertise that we had. I just think it was, people weren't expecting what they were going to see. We just tore the place apart. You mentioned the outfit and, you know, in the film we see a heightened and sort of surrealistic version of that performance. But you obviously on that night and on many subsequent nights, got a lot of coverage for the sort of flamboyance of your presentation. And so everything from the midgets to the Donald Duck suit. I guess I what I've always been perplexed about is how a guy who, as you say, was so shy off the stage could become so kind of open to things on the stage. My teenage years were very, very... Um... I wasn't really allowed to wear the clothes I wanted to, and I wasn't probably the right shape. So in my 20s, becoming a performer, I suddenly went for broke, and I could do anything I wanted to with the glasses, with the clothes. And for me, I was being stuck at a piano. So I'm not Mick Jagger, I'm not Rod Stewart, David Bowie. They command an audience by, you know, looking amazing, moving around the stage. I was stuck at a plank. So I thought, if I'm going to be stuck at the plank, I'm going to look amazing. (laughs) And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to make that plank look fantastic. Um, and that was part of my, you know, that was thanks to little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis. They showed me the way. And, yeah, I, and I took it a little step further and probably yeah. took it maybe a step too far sometimes. <laughs> but I was having a great time. It was never calculated. It was like I asked Bill Whitten to make me clothes and he would make me the most ridiculous clothes with fluorescent balls. And, and I said, yes, I will wear that. I will wear that. <laughs> um, I don't think Bernie was too amused sometimes, but it was just part of the process. I was having fun. It came very naturally to me. Coming off stage was different because I, you know, I was back to being me and shy and introvert. And so um, on stage, I felt safe and secure and just, yes, <laughs> this is me. But then I would come off stage like in the movie and didn't know really what to do. And that is what, in a sense, on top of the suddenness of the celebrity, sort of, would you say that is what led to substance abuse? Yeah, Yeah, I would think so. Uh, I was shy, so I wanted to join in. I wanted to be part of the crowd, and the crowd was smoking dope, and the crowd were doing cocaine, and the crowd were drinking. I drank, but I didn't drink to excess. And then... um, I saw someone doing cocaine at the Caribou Ranch in uh, Colorado, and I didn't know what it was. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and they told me, and I said, what does it make you feel like? And they said, they make you feel good. I thought, oh, well, I'll have a go. <laughs> Worst decision of my life. But I did. I, I felt an outsider off stage, and I wanted to join the gang. And, of course, then you, you smoke a joint, and you take cocaine, and you open up, and you speak. Probably the most ludicrous rubbish, but <laughs> you speak, and you feel, oh, I'm social. 
Um, How does it affect music? Does it make you better? No, of course not. It doesn't make you better at all. I've never really... I mean, all those albums up to Captain Fantastic were never made under the influence. Not my, I'm The band was smoking, but I wasn't doing mm-hmm. anything. Caribou was the first time I did, tried that. I think it makes you think you're writing great songs. Gives you a false sense of security. And of course, that disappears as soon as you stop taking it and you come, you know, come round two days later and then you feel so awful. Mm-hmm. It's a decision. If I could go back in time, would I do that again? No, absolutely no way. I didn't need to. I was, you know, although I was shy, I had enough energy to keep me going, you know, forever and ever. But I would never have made that decision again. The only thing I will say about it, because I made that decision and it put me through a lot of hell and pain, it made me the person I am today. And it's been 29 and a half years nearly since I did any of that. And I've learned to live my life on the proper terms. Yeah. And I've learned to be not so shy. And I've learned, you know, I've, I've had to listen. I've had to form a way of living um, that is conducive to not taking drugs and drinking alcohol. And I love it. So if I had to go through that pain and torture to get me to where I was in 1990, mm-hmm. then so be it, you know. Just one last follow-up about that. Could anything have gotten you to stop sooner than 1990, or do you think it just had to run its course? No. I mean, there were periods of time when I stopped for nine months. It wasn't total, you know, all the time. And I knew I had a problem. Oh, yeah, I knew that. Um, but when people told me, I cut them out of my life. How dare you tell me? I know. <laughs> Don't tell me. But it's pride. It, I couldn't ask for help because I thought it was a sign of weakness. And it's such a tragic thing. So many people are in pain on a day-to-day basis, and they're too afraid to ask for help, lest they appear weak. And that was my problem. And I think what happened was when Ryan White died, and I was there for the funeral for the week in Indianapolis, and it's in the book, and I came home to the hotel, and I, I looked at my life, and I thought, you are really the bottom of the barrel. You are disgusting. It was a real motivation for me to do something with my life because I was so ashamed of who I was. And then finally, when I broke down and said, yes, I will get help. Everything in my body came alive. I know it sounds ludicrous, but I was in Arizona and I was being interviewed by a therapist and he said, what do you think then? I said, no, I think I'll get help. And as soon as I said that, it was like everything alive came alive in my dead soul. And um, I knew there was hope. Mind you, the journey was not without hiccups. Um, I couldn't find a place at that time to, I was bulimic, I couldn't find a, a rehab facility to take bulimics, alcoholics and cocaine addicts and we finally found a hospital in Chicago and I went there for six weeks and I had a problem to start with. I didn't want to stay because I didn't like the word God. I didn't, you know, you know I rebelled against it. I left a couple of times and sat on the sidewalk and I thought, well, where are you running to now? Um, I had to listen. I had to say, listen, making the same mistake over and over again. You have to listen. These people are here because they know the answer. And finally, I began to do it, and I really worked hard. I really, really worked hard. You can see that in the book when um, I wrote my letter, farewell letter to cocaine. And I got it, and I took a year off. I came back to England. I had great aftercare. I worked my tush off um, for three years. And um, I had to put the amount of work in or double the amount of work in to my recovery as I had into making myself a complete mess. One of the things that's very interesting about the way you guys made the film Rocket Man is that the songs, unlike many music-related biopics, in this case, the songs are used out of the context in which they actually came mm-hmm. about. Yeah. So I wonder if that, if I can seize that opportunity to ask you, just even if we do a sentence on each, if I can just ask you about the actual story of a few of these songs in the film. Right. I mean, we got to start with your song because that was the first hit. You've said it came out in like 20 minutes. More or less. And as soon as I'd finished it, I knew we had taken a giant leap forward. We'd written a lovely song on Empty Sky called Skyline Pigeon, which is something I still sing. It's actually my most popular song in, in South America. But as soon as I wrote your song, I thought, hey, we've gone from sophomore to graduating and all the songs from that album you know as soon as I'd written that song for the album all the others came straight away and it was it was a giant leap forward from the previous album and yeah it was exciting I didn't know obviously that the song would be the song that I would sing that song every single show of my life (laughs) and also it's one of my most famous songs and it's probably one of my best songs and you write that kind of song as your first great song 
And you think, well, how am I going to write another right, one? It's a high bar. But I didn't really, we were young, I didn't think like that. And you can tell everybody This is the song It may be quite simple, but Now that it's done I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind What I put down in the words How wonderful life is While you're So that was on the self-titled album in 1970. Then the next year on the album Madman Across the Water was Tiny Dancer, which I think people may not realize was actually not very successful, not highly originally, right? No, I mean, Tumbleweed, which followed Elton John, didn't have a single from it. We were album artists. We weren't single artists. It all changed when Hockey Chateau happened. But Madman Across the Water was another orchestral album with the two songs that were issued as singles were Levon and Tiny Dancer. I think they were both top 40 hits, but not big hits at all. Tiny Dancer really had its resurgence when Almost Famous came out. And uh, Cameron Crowe is a friend of mine, and I owe him big time for because um, <laughs> the scene in Almost Famous rejuvenated that song, and it's now one of my most popular songs. It's a song I love to sing. I love it so much because it's in certain, about three or four different parts musically. So many songs of mine have had different lives after I thought they'd finished. Yes. Um, Candle of the Wind being another one. Yes, going to come to that one in a second. But you mentioned Honky Chateau. This is 1972. And I guess the first thing people come to off of that is Rocket Man. And you have said, quote, your song was a hit. Rocket Man was a big hit. And that Bernie actually has said about Rocket Man that this was one of the rare instances where you did maybe do a slight tinker to the lyrics that made it better in his view because he said i think he had written it and i think it's going to be a long time and you made it long long time well it didn't fit the uh, i think it's going to be a long time long long yeah that happens you know you just have to fit it into the what happened with rocket man is that on my first three albums like the second two three and four which was elton john tumbleweed madman my band which you know, the band I was talking about at the Troubadour, they didn't play on the records because my record producer, Gus Dudgeon, wanted to follow the same formula. And he was right. But I was felt very guilty about it. And I also wanted to change the band, so I added a guitarist, David Johnson. And we went to the Chateau d'Aureville near Paris. And what happened was I would get up for breakfast in the morning. We'd have a whole little setup of piano, bass, drums, guitar, round the breakfast table. I, Bernie would be typing away. And he'd finish a lyric and give it to me. I would sit at the electric piano and say, so I can remember what writing uh, Rocket Man. And the, then the boys would come down for breakfast a little later and they'd pick up an acoustic, a bass, and start playing. We'd write it and then we'd go straight, walk across the courtyard and record it. And it was music, you know, we wrote it at breakfast. And, you know, we used to write three or four songs a day and record them because people say that's maybe a bit big headed. We had budgets. Yeah. We had a budget. Yeah. You know, and we made two albums here and we had a budget and we kept to it and we had to. From the album Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, and the next year, 73, Crocodile Rock, which I think you have said that this is the song that probably changed critics' opinion about you. Why was that? Well, it was it was a pastiche tribute to um, my growing up in the past, to Paul Anka, Diana, to Pat Boone, Speedy Gonzalez, to all those great bubblegum kind of records from the 50s and early 60s. And when you get a record like, get a lyric like Crocodile, it's the only way you can go. Um, I have done it as a torch song very slowly, and it's quite <laughs> funny. Um, but I think that was, you know, it, Daniel before that and um, Rocket Man and Honky Cat 
uh, Crocodile was a definite kind of, what's this? This is the man who wrote your song. Um, and people have to, you know, I said, I love all sorts of music. This is the music I grew up with. And I love the sequence in the movie. And I, they said, oh, we're going to use Crocodile Rock at the Troubadour. I went, oh, no. But it was a stroke of genius on the director's behalf because when I levitate and I hang in the air, yes. Michael Stipe from REM said, that is exactly that moment when you're just, wow. When you've got an audience in the palm of your hand, that's how you feel. And he said, that's the first time I've seen that visually portrayed properly yeah. as a musician feels where he's got the audience by the palm of the hand. And that if feeling of elation, which is only maybe two or three split seconds when you know you've got it. And that's how I felt when I started at Troubadour. We'd done two numbers. And I thought, oh, we're, we're home and dry here. Mm-hmm. This is going really well. So, um, yeah, Crocodile Rock, it's... Um, it's a number I look forward to uh, putting away in the closet, I must say. Yeah. But, the, but the, it's, it's such, the crowd love it. The crowd love Thank it. You. And, um, you know, it's, is it my favourite song we've ever written? No, but it was meant to be a tribute to those fabulous songs, Danny and the Juniors, all those kind of things. First of all, amazingly, that same year was the album Goodbye Yellowbrook Road. And I think the thing I want to ask you about here, there's so many of your most popular songs came out of this. Aside from the the title track, you've got Candle in the Wind, Benny and the Jets, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. You mentioned Candle in the Wind as an example of one that, how, how a song can have so many different lives. This one started out, I think, in Bernie's mind, I've read as, a tribute to Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, it, was, it was a straight tribute to Marilyn. And then years, decades later, you're using it for Princess Diana. Just Well, it had three lives in England. It was a hit from... In America, I wanted it to be the third single after Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting Goodbye, Elevate Road. But the record company had other ideas. They wanted Benny and the Jets, and we had this battle between us. And I still wanted Candle in the Wind. And then one day they rang me at Caribou. I was making the next album. This is going on. We were making Caribou. And they said, what have we told you? It was number one R&B record in Detroit. And I went, Benny and the Jets is? Put it out. <laughs> and, of course, they, they were right, and I was totally wrong. So it never came out as a single in America. In England it did, and it was a hit. Then I went to Australia years later and did an uh, orchestral tour with a Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. And the live version of that, which was just me on my own, became a hit in America and Britain as well. And then, of course, the third time was the most tragic circumstances, which was when Princess Diana was, uh, was killed in the crash, that it became the song that everybody was writing in the condolences book. And so I got to make that record. I wish I hadn't had to make that record. I mean, if I could turn back time and change the way history worked, I, you know, it, it's, it's such a tragic moment and uh, all a bit of a blur. When you th- look back on it, it happened so quickly, I can't really remember much about it. Yeah. I know I went to the um, Abbey and I sang the song. I had a rehearsal the day before. The first time I ever used a teleprompter was for that because I thought if I sing Goodbye Norma Jean, I'm going to get killed. So I really had to concentrate. I had a teleprompter on my left-hand side on the floor mm. and I sang it. I got through it. It was really good. I was singing it for the whole of the world. And then I left and I went to the studio and George Martin was there. I did two live run-throughs, two takes, and I left. And then he put the cellos on and it was out on the Monday. Unbelievable. Extraordinary stuff. Yeah. And it seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind. Never knowing who to cling to when the rain set in. Another song that I think had two very different lives was from Caribou, which came out the next year, and that is Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. First, again in 74, and then years years later, uh, even more successful, I think, when you did it with George Michael, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a number one single in, in, um, in America. It was very long. I mean, <laughs> I'm very slow, as Rod Stewart pointed out. He said, is it a ballad? <laughs> um, and uh, yes, and then... 
it, I'd come out of treatment and George was playing in Chicago and he said, will you come on and do Don't Let the Sun Go Down a Minute? And I thought, this is, again, it's, it's happenstance because I got sober in Chicago. So I went to Chicago and I came on stage with him and we did it together and it came out and the rest is history. He recorded a couple of my songs and uh, you know, he was one of the greatest singers I'd ever heard. And, you know, again, another bittersweet moment for yeah. me as to regards to what happened to George. Yeah, it's a weird. If you the songs have so much, uh, so many lives to them, and you don't realize, and uh, I'm wondering what the next one might be. Yeah. I mean, for example, "Are You Ready for Love," which was on the Tom Bell sessions, mm-hmm. and I had a big number one R and B hit with "Mama Can't Buy You Love," which was from that session, and then "Are You Ready for Love." came out in England a few years ago and went to number one. And you think, God, I've forgotten about that. <laughs> that's why I love this business, because yeah. you never know. No. You never know what's going to happen. And that's why you love you know, writing songs is so wonderful, because you suddenly one will come back and you think, oh, I remember that one. It's pretty good. It's not bad. Because <laughs> I don't tend to wallow in the past. Right. I tend to look forward. But, you know, on this tour that we're doing, yeah. the Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour, there are certain songs which I've rediscovered, like Someone Saved My Life Tonight is now my favourite song. Wow. And during the show, it's just, you know, I look forward to that moment so much. And it's just, funny how that works. I just want to note that that was, of course, one of the many hits on Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. It's also in 74, uh, same as Caribou. Why have your feelings about that song changed all these years later? I didn't realize what a good song it was, probably. Captain Fantastic was a wonderful album to make because it was written in running order. And usually with an album, you make the tracks and then you have to put them in a running order. And it was written from start to finish, which made it easier. Probably the best produced record I've ever made. And it was about Bernie and myself. So it was so personal and so wonderful. I'm so proud of that record. But I don't think, I mean, I've played that song many times, but on this tour, it has a resonance. Maybe it's because I realize how much Bernie and I mean to each other, mm-hmm. how what we've been through, um, how we've survived with really never really having an argument and, um, you know, just having 52 years is extraordinary for a relationship. um, But it's nice to realise what a great song that is. And I love singing it. And and I can remember the the incident that it was written about. um, And and it makes it even more special. And without prying or asking you to talk more than you're comfortable, I mean, that you, you in the film suggest that sort of, self-harm had been something even in the 60s that was uh, an issue was this this seemed to be referring to that someone yeah. that right yeah also on that album is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and I know that you were as you said earlier I think a, a huge fan of the Beatles so how does it come about that you're doing their song well I I played on John Lennon's record of whatever gets used through the night from the walls and bridges album that was so much fun I was you know I was very intimidated but John and I become friends and I made a bet that if he get to number one, he'd come on stage with me, and he did. Yeah. But also I said, I'd like to record one of your songs. Which one would you like me to do? He said, no one's ever recorded Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And I said, right, we'll do that one. And um, for years that was a staple in my stage show. Yeah. Um, and some people don't even know it was a No, it was a huge hit. No, exactly. And then I did Pimble Woods as right, well. So right. it was nice to do other things other than what I wrote. Yeah. You know, That was lovely, doing Pimble Woods and... And Lucy in the Sky gave me a chance to have a go at someone else's songs. Yeah. go back just for one second to caribou the bitch is back who is the bitch who knows <laughs> probably me i don't know um but it's i've kind of taken on that mantle and the crowd kind of take on that mantle and um you know there's been so many times where i my career has been written off and saying well he's you know can't write the songs he used to and he hasn't had the hits that he used to and it's good to prove them wrong nobody can write hits all the time and as i say I can't write a deliberate hit. I'm not very good at... The only two songs that I've really written deliberately were Don't Get Breaking My Heart and Philadelphia Freedom, and they were written as a one-off thing. But if I knew what was going to be a hit, and then I'd be, you know, richer than Bill Gates, probably. (laughs) Well, I guess speaking of Don't Go Breaking My Heart, that's the first time you had ever asked 
Bernie to write a duet, I right. think. Did he acclimate to that immediately? I'm not sure I, he was that fond of it. Um, <laughs> but he loved Kiki, and, and I produced records for Kiki D, yeah. and um, we were on holiday in Barbados together. And so, you know, he, Bernie doesn't grumble that much, yeah. and he just wrote the lyric and uh, then faxed it to me in Barbados, and that was it. And um, we recorded it in uh, Toronto. So that album and that song, of course, both 1976. I want to quote back to you a, a line that you say via Taryn in the movie. Quote, I started being a cunt in 1975 and I forgot to stop. Close quote. So what, <laughs> what in your view, was the principal driver of you being a cunt? I think I'm a, I wasn't a total C-U-N-T, <laughs> but there were occasions when... You take substances, and those substances, when you come down from them, lead to ba bad behavior and irrationality. I never treated people that badly, but um, I was, you know, irrational, shouted at people. You know, it makes you insane. It's an insane thing to do, take that amount of drugs. Um, and I wasn't proud of that behavior because that's not really who I am. And it's led to a lot of, you know, people saying I've always been a diva. Um, I haven't all, I'm not really, in the early days, I was never a diva. I think the drugs led to that behavior. And then that kind of label stuck to me. Now I don't take drugs. If I do have an opinion, I give it. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm quite forthright. But in those days, it was irrational and it was unnecessary. It seems like even at the depths of what you were dealing with in terms of substance abuse, you somehow were still able to function on stage at an extremely high level because yeah. one thing that blew my mind reading this, prepping for this, in 1975, you said, you've said that in 1975, two days before these sold-out concerts at Dodger Stadium, the first ones there since the Beatles' second to last, you were having your stomach pumped two days before. Exactly. I'm very resilient. Um, <laughs> I have a, a constitution of an ox. And, of course, that was such an important show to me. How could I not, you know? And um, to be honest with you, when I took drugs, I still worked. And I... Um, um, I didn't sit at home just as a recluse because I would be dead. Yeah. Uh, so I worked because I love music so much. So music from the age of three or four was my blanket, my comfort blanket. And when I was doing terrible things to myself in the 70s and 80s, it was also my comfort blanket. And so it kept me alive. And I have to thank you. Without music, my life, you know, it's been my, everything to, to me. And it's... um. If I hadn't have had that love of music, I would have died without question. Because even when I was at the depths of despair, I used to play music all the time. In my, in my, you know, keep up with CDs, keep up with new things. Um, you were saying it was Peter Gabriel, right? And yeah. Certain others. Pete, Kate, don't, don't give up. Peter, Peter Gabriel with Kate Bush, Bruce Hornsby, Lost Soul. You know, sad music made me realize, and I used to sit there and cry and weep and thinking, I want to get well. I must get well. Come on, pull yourself together. But without that ability to be humble, and say, I need help, I can't do this on my own. I thought I could do everything. You know, the, the irrational analysis that you can, because you're famous and you're, you think you're intelligent, that you can fix everything yourself is completely stupid, and I've learned that. Um, other people know better than you, and you just have to um, bite the bullet. And I've seen so many people in my life, other performers, other people, friends, not be able to to get to that decision and, and die as, as a result. But you've also helped a lot of them who were kind of crying out for help, right? Yeah. If you, if you don't ask for help, you're never going to make it. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the only friction, I don't know if it was even explicitly discussed, but the only issue that you and Bernie ever really had was, was when you sort of went those separate ways for a few years, I guess, early 80s. Yeah. And Bernie had, you know, hits with We Built the City and... Um, these dreams for heart and uh, I think we were both a little jealous of each other um, <laughs> but we never stepped we never said you can't do it if I'd have said to Bernie you can't do this then we'd have broken up if you love somebody set them free I think it's a police song mm -hmm. um, but it, that's the truth and I you know as much as it hurt me to think that he was having success with other people I had this common sense to realize he's got to do this he deserves this he needs the chance to write with other people I cannot say you can only write with me. What right do I have to do that? And again, that kept us together. And when you really kind of reunited, I believe it was for Too Low for Zero, 83, mm -hmm. which has not just, I guess that's why they call it the blues, but also I'm Still Standing, which I wonder, that's got to be one where I would imagine 
you two were in some consultation about the lyrics. It seems like it's not at all. Not at all. Not at all. So it's no. not about uh, you. It's a bit like in the film. Yeah. And he gave me the lyric. No, 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 no. He just gave me the lyric. Wow. He knows me inside out. Yeah. yeah. He knows me inside out. I, I know him inside out. He knows me inside out. And he gave me that lyric as if to say, come on now. This is the start of another period. Yeah. And uh, let's go from here. And it was, you know, very joyous, very fantastic and anthemic and so great for me to sing that lyric. And, you know, it's been a, it's been, I never get fed up with singing that song. Don't you know I'm still standing better than I ever did Looking like a true survivor Feeling like a little kid I'm still standing after all this time Picking up the pieces of my life without you on my mind I'm still standing You know, you know other artists and say oh no he's finished now blah 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 and I think fuck off basically <laughs> you know I've written all these great songs I'm right. you know I'm still selling out arenas everywhere yeah and you think I'm finished I mean and this was like a middle you know the middle finger yes um, yes and I you know there are certain artists that, you know, written in books I oh well he's still standing but I don't think so and it's like no really well this is now nearly well, yeah, 2020 yeah. and you've disappeared and I have right I mean if you think about it so you started in the 60s, 70s, yeah. 80s, 90s, 00s, yeah. 10s, 20, seven decades. I don't yeah. know how many people can can say that. No, probably not. Uh, <laughs> it's just, but it's all because I love music. Yes. Moving closer to the present, I have to thank you as a Broadway lover for what you've done for theater, which started really with The Lion King and then included Aida, Billy Elliot, so many things. You ended up winning a uh, an Oscar for the song Circle of Life, You've no, said, actually, it was for Can me, You Feel for, the Love Them. For Can you, but you've said it, it should have been. been. <laughs> it should have been Circle of Life because right. it's a better song. You feel and that? I right? think it's a better song. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to argue about it. Um, <laughs> that was a magical moment for me, um, obviously. And the whole Lion King process was so wonderful to be involved. It was teamwork. And I've always loved teamwork. Being part of a songwriting team is fabulous. When you're making records, I've always had great producers, great bands, and great musicians. I don't tell them what to play. They contribute. And when you do musicals, you're, you're all in there together. And you have to leave your ego on the floor. You might write so many songs for musical, like I did for Billy Elliot, two of the greatest songs I thought were left out. But it would have made the song show too long. And um, you just have to say, okay, it's for the show's good, not mine. It's the, this is, uh, you know, it's been a wonderful, wonderful learning curve. You know, before The Lion King, I had my recording career on a tour, and that was it. Lion King opened the doors for writing songs for other animation movies, for writing scores for movies, for theatre. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm not like someone like Rod Stewart, who is a great performer, but that's all he has. I've got other things to do. Mm-hmm. In more recent years, it seems like from from other interviews, recent interviews that you've given, it seems like you've taken some pressure off yourself to, you know, I'm not going to try to necessarily get as much radio play as I once did. I am going to focus on doing things that are important to me, whether that is working with somebody like T-Bone Burnett, who, fun fact, happened to have been there on the first night at the Troubadour, right? Right. Or sort of reviving the career of one of your heroes, Leon Russell. Yeah. So... How does that feel differently as an artist today? To Does it feel like you have sort of shed a burden? You can just do what you want to do? Yeah, you have to. Because I've been a follower of music and the charts all my life, and still are, I still get the charts every week, the radio charts, mm-hmm. there's a time when it's other people's turn. You can't seriously think that you're going to come into number one every time you put a record out because I just thought this is not going to work out. And, and also... Uh, Blue Moves, I mean, I had Sorry Seemed to be the Hardest Word, but it's a very uncommercial record. People have to look at my albums and think, they're not really completely commercial records, save say for maybe Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. So I had the wherewithal to know that that wasn't going to last, but I knew that my career would last because I had a great back catalogue and I was a proven concert artist. People who think that their career will still, they don't get top 40 radio play, and I could name two or three acts, but I'm not going to, <laughs> are living in the past. I mean... You know, you're not, it's another person, it's another generation. They have their own heroes. And I'm not bitter about that at all. It just makes, I can make the records that I really want to do, like the, the Union with Leon Russell. I can make The Diving Board, which is one of my favorite records. Or I can do Wonderful Crazy Night, which was just an out and out, more or less rock and roll record. And I can do what I do. And, you know, the sales aren't great. 
but it doesn't mean to say I don't enjoy making the albums less. Mm-hmm. It's just I know that they're not going to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have that mentality of knowing that it's not going to be that, I'm not going to make a Christmas record. I'm not going to do a great American songbook record. I'm not going to make a covers record because I don't want to. <laughs> and I don't want to go down that route. It's not because I think it's a bad route to go down. Right. Not at all. Right. But it's just not me. Right. Other people have done it and they've done it very, very well. It's just not in my n- nature to do that. So Rocket Man, the idea of a of a movie about your life, where did that originate? I know you've been involved with your husband for for decades or more than a decade. Why did it take as long as it did to get it right the way you wanted? And how did we end up with Taron Edgerton as you? Film industry um, <laughs> took a long, long time. Um, Disney didn't want it because of the um, the element of the film that I wanted to make. You know, the warts and all element. Many studios were afraid they wanted it to be a PG film and I didn't want to make a PG film. And I was quite, I'd rather not made a film. And then to make a long story short, Paramount came along and they said, yes, we'll back you on this one. Originally it was going to be Tom Hardy playing me and then the the process got so long drawn out that he became too old. And I loved Tom and he realised that. that We had another director in place and that fell by the way. And again, it's like, serendipity it all came right in the end and you have to be there's no reason to put a film out unless you get it right i'd rather not have the film now i wasn't that much involved in the film david furnish he's my husband he was one of the producers with matthew vaughan i you know i i went through every stage of the film in bed while he was looking at rushes and everything like that and i trusted him and he was brilliant and i really only saw the film at the beginning of this year um a rough cut and, and it just it i was weeping i was just very emotional why do you think that? What, why did it have that effect on you? Because I didn't know what to, I didn't know the songs were going to be out of order, um, and the scene where I want love with the fan, which just blew me away when everyone's everyone's so unhappy, and it brought back a lot of painful memories. And then I hadn't seen the ending of the film till I got to the Cannes Film Festival when Bernie comes to treatment and gives me the lyric and and sees me mopping the floor, and I wept during that in the Cannes Film Festival because it just made me so happy that he was came back and he was the one thing in my whole life uh, from the beginning to the end of that movie he was my rock and he hadn't been there all the time but he was the the, the two of us couldn't be shifted and and I, I wept for that and we released the film um, and we didn't know what to expect we didn't make Bohemian Rhapsody because we wanted to uh, do a PG uh, an R film mm-hmm. Paramount were brilliant they backed us all the way it was the first studio movie ever to have a gay sex scene in it mm-hmm. And I wanted to tell the truth. A lot of people, most people absolutely loved it. A lot of people, naysayers, somebody in San Francisco, the movie critic said, didn't delve into my career enough. And it was, you know, the, the songwriting process wasn't, well, the songwriting process was shown in your mm-hmm. song. That's mm-hmm. it. I wanted to show the painful journey of um, addiction, success, and how it can make you even more addictive. The fact that it came from my childhood, you know, not having being insular as a child leading to my addiction and then being able to conquer it. I wanted to show the whole journey and the perils of it and the redemption. Mm. And um, for an R-rated film, it did $100 million in America. And um, I I actually can honestly say I wouldn't change a thing about it. That's terrific. And I know that you've been very complimentary of the job that Taron did as you. Oh, Taron, I mean, not only... When I was looking at it, I was thinking... That's me. That's me. And he got my, you know, my moves down. The only person I'd ever seen do that before was Justin Timberlake mm-hmm. in a video of uh, he did of uh, this train don't stop there anymore. And I said, that's my expression. That's that. And then he had to do the music with Giles Martin. And when Taron started the process, he was a bit, you know, a bit of a Broadway singer, and you know, it's a little bit funny. He could sing brilliantly, mm-hmm. but to get your lips around Hercules and Saturday Night and Bitted Back and stuff like that. You've got to learn to sing, you know, become a bit of a rock singer. Mm-hmm. And he learned, he threw himself into the whole process. And I just think he's phenomenal. And I really think he deserves the Oscar above anyone I've seen this year because it was a double. Um, I mean, there's been great performances, but I'm so biased because I knew how hard he had to work with the music. And then, of course, he had to portray me. And I'm a living person. I'm not dead. <laughs> so that's even harder, you know. Um, and we became lifetime friends because of this and the original song is shortlisted for an oscar as well yeah it's nominated two, you've got well, we two. don't know if it's nominated for an oscar it's on the shortlist shortlist but, but it's um you have two of 15 that's a pretty high yeah, percentage I have two songs on the shortlist so we'll see i you know i'm 
I would love him to get recognition for it um, because I, I, I'm hoping he's named in the best acts, one of the best actors in the Oscars. It's a very difficult race because there's so many great yeah, performances, yeah. but he deserves it. With the last two minutes, if I can, yeah. I want to just do something we call rapid fire. Just the first thing that comes to your mind. Right. Which of your standards did you write the fastest and which took the longest? Whew. Your song was pretty quick. Yeah. Um, Daniel was very, very quick. Yeah. Crocodile Rock was very quick. The longest, I'd probably say Yellow Brick Road because it's such a complex song, chord-wise. Mm-hmm. It goes through a lot of chord progressions and um, I had to get the mood of the song completely right and make it, you know... I would say that probably took, it didn't take that long, but it was pretty long. Sure. What do you love more, making music by yourself or performing music for an audience? <sighs> I love performing. Yeah? Yeah. What does it feel like when masses of people, we're talking like it's been at, at one time 800,000 at the Coliseum in Rome, 600,000 at the Square in Kiev, when that many people are singing along to songs that you've created, is there, can you compare it to any other feeling in life? That's why you do what you do. I, I say on stage on the Farewell Yellow Brick Tour, as much as I love to write songs, a lot of time I love to make records, the greatest thing for any musician worth his salt is playing to another human being, getting a reaction. That's why you do it. That's why I gave up the job with Long John Baldrick because I was playing to people that didn't give you a reaction. And that's why... I made my own course and my own, you know, I, I, I charted my own path, not knowing what I was going to do, but I, because I loved getting a reaction as a musician and not getting a reaction is oh, so horrible. Is it frustrating to you to know that your desire to play the new, new music may not always be shared with the audience's desire, you know, when they want to hear the hits? Yes, I, absolutely. It's, it's extremely frustrating. I learned my lesson. At Wembley Stadium, when I, 1975, played the whole of the Captain Fantastic album from start to finish, which nobody had heard. And by the fourth number, you could feel the audience going to the toilet. And then <laughs> by the ninth number, you still got three more to go. And you think, this is a disaster. I don't want to do it. It is frustrating because when I stop all this um, and then I decide to do a show again, um, I want to do some of the songs that haven't been, uh, I haven't been able to play the songs. Yeah. There's so many songs I think are as good as, but you can't, as Mick Jagger so rightly said, if you go on stage and you don't play the hits for people, they've paid the money to come and see you. They're going to feel shortchanged. Yeah. Who's the greatest living musical artist not named Elton John? At the moment? Yeah. Oh, that's hard to say. Um, there's so many good ones. I would say Dylan because he always changes his direction. I mean, he, he was the template for me for making the diving board and the union because when he did Modern Times, I thought, well, you're kind of how old are you? And you're just changing so often your musical style. Yeah, he's not so much on stage, but on record, I, he's no one's really changed as much. Your favorite and least favorite song of yours to perform? Ah, oh, <laughs> someone say my life tonight at the moment. It changes. Mm-hmm. Um, least favorite song at the moment would be Crocodile Rock, probably. Last three. If the world was on fire and only one Elton John song could be saved, which would you want it to be? Your song. What would you be doing today if you had never learned to play music or sing? Probably working in a record store. If you know, I'd, be, I'd be at um, Amoeba. <laughs> and finally, many years from now, when we are all gone, how would you like people to remember Elton John? I just wanted to be remembered as a humanitarian who cared about people. Music was incidental, but I, you know, I just want to rem- be remembered as someone who tried to help other people. I can't thank you enough for doing this. Thanks thank so you. much. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app of choice and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out all of the other shows that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network. 
Rebecca Ford and Rebecca Sons' Hollywood Remixed, Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Josh Wiggler's Series Regular, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.